Hello, I'm Dr. Jennifer Pierce, and this is Singular XQ, the podcast about digital transformation. In this unprecedented time of accelerating explosive change, many of us feel like we don't know what we're doing. But I know one thing. We can't solve the problems of digital transformation inside silos. So we're doing the work of digital transformation, one conversation at a time. Hello, and welcome back to Singular XQ, the podcast about digital transformation. As some of you may or may not know, Singular XQ has done quite a bit of consulting in the higher ed sector, and I have one of my favorite colleagues from that sector here today with us, Dr. Jean-Marie Higgins, Associate Professor of Theater at Penn State, Head of the BA Program in Theater, and an Associate of the ADRI. Hi, Jean-Marie. Hey, Jim. How are you doing? Thanks for being here today. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I'm doing really well. I'm doing really well. It's Friday. It's Friday. Yes, <laughs> that's always a good thing. And we always record on Fridays here, so everybody's in a good mood. <laughs> so, Jean Marie, one of the reasons that I invited you here today, although there are many, because I always enjoy talking to you, is you have a book that recently came out about teaching online and technology in the aftermath of the pandemic. So I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about that book and what the takeaways are and and what you learned in in compiling it. Yeah. So um, the book is called Teaching Performance Practices in Remote and Hybrid Spaces. And sometime in the middle of the pandemic, my colleague, Alicia Clark Halpin, and I decided that we wanted to co-edit a collection about what we were doing at that moment, you know, teaching online, figuring out how to do that when we had to teach online. So that if the pandemic were to continue, which of course it did, we would provide a resource for professors to teach these very sort of these these practices that are very associated with liveness in ethical and possible and even amazing ways, right? So we put together a call for papers. We asked a bunch of people to write chapters. We met some people we didn't know who submitted proposals for chapters and we put the book together. And we divided it into a few sections. Uh, There's a section about design and technology, meaning theater design and theater technology, a section about dance and movement, teaching dance and movement, a section about doing theater production, you know, online. And the first section is about really pedagogies of care that we learned um, from teaching during the pandemic online. And how all of this work that we did to sort of teach through that first wave of the pandemic really led us to the idea that we don't need to learn how to use technology better, although we do. But what we really need to do is to include our students in our pedagogy, taking into consideration the kind of access needs they have and and have always had that the pandemic really underlined for us. So we thought we were going to be writing this book that was like, the best tips you ever heard about how to teach online. But really what we ended up with was a book about caring for our students and for our colleagues and letting that lead our pedagogy in digital spaces. That's so interesting in several respects. And even though we have quite a few artists and scholars in our listening audience here, we also have a lot of people in business and industry listening. And what may not have occurred to people was that when teaching switched to this online mode, during the pandemic, people who taught theater and dance were in this really precarious position because it was so dependent, as you said, on liveness. 
So did any kind of interesting perspectives on that emerge? What happened when you tried to take live practices and put them into digital spaces? Yeah. So, you know, I teach a variety of classes and and I certainly, I don't teach studio classes like dance or acting, but I do teach, I, I teach at, at that moment, my colleague and I, Alicia and I, the co-editor of the book, were teaching 250 student introduction to performance studies class. And we had to switch from teaching in a really nice classroom <laughs> with all sorts of technology that worked really well, good lights, the whole thing, even a little stage where we could, you know, uh, do demonstrations, things like that, have guest artists. And we had guest artists and we had Steph Africa come to our class. We had Liz Wright sing for us. I mean, it was a really great class. And then the pandemic happened and we had to move entirely online. And we started by teaching synchronously online and that worked fine. It was a, it was about giving students something to do while they were home. Honestly, it was really just sort of providing community. But then what we discovered is that when you are teaching more asynchronously online, you are able to create experiences for students that might not be live in the traditional sense, but that are more intimate because you're communicating one-on-one. So if we asked a student to compose a dance and record it and upload it, when I encounter that dance online, I am, I am witnessing a student in a very vulnerable place, you know, taking college during the pandemic in their childhood bedroom, usually engaging in a practice that is unfamiliar to them because they're not professional dancers. They're college students who are taking an elective arts class. And so my viewing of that dance and their doing of that dance is in some ways a much more intimate and profound connection between instructor and student than I could have if I were in a lecture hall standing right in front of them and asking for volunteers to do the same sort of thing. That was my biggest takeaway was that we, you know, when we started to teach asynchronously online, that's when we started to understand how we were creating much more meaningful relationships with our students than we possibly could when we were teaching live to a large group. That's so interesting. And a lot of us, if we think of study and teaching both as forms of work, when we talk about the future of work, that's one of the biggest things that people are exploring right now is this cadence between synchronous and asynchronous action. And I think it's been very interesting and revealing in multiple respects. So let me let me ask you, is there any particular, uh, well, where can people get this book, first of all? Oh, it's published by Rutledge. So you can go to the Rutledge website, and then also it'll probably be in most academic libraries if you have access to that. And if you don't, you can request that your library order the book if you are in an academic library. But yeah, Rutledge.com. <laughs> yep. And the title of it again, once again, is just for it's the listening uh, teaching, Yeah, it's Teaching Performance Practices in Remote and Hybrid Spaces, and it's edited by me, Jean Marie Higgins, and my colleague, Alicia Clark Halpin. Interesting. Okay, great. So I'm going to come back to the pandemic in just one second, but let's pan out even further. So how long have you been teaching, Jean Marie? You know, I started teaching right when I graduated college. So I've been teaching for decades now. My first job teaching was as a teaching assistant at Writers Theater of New Jersey, used to be called Playwrights Theater of New Jersey. And the 90s was a time when arts councils and governments and states especially were putting a lot of money into applied theater projects, especially 
for um, incarcerated youth, youth at risk, community projects like arts and housing projects, things like that. So I was sort of the beneficiary of that is that I learned to teach playwriting by observing other people teaching playwriting in institutionalized settings to children, really to, you know, teenagers. So I've been teaching that that's how I started teaching. And by teaching playwriting, I got interested in playwriting. And so then I, you know, I started to do that, got an MFA in playwriting and then thought, oh, I'll, I'll be a playwriting professor. Then 9-11 happened and I decided, you know, I think I might want to leave New York after a while. I did think this. I was there for a while and I wanted to teach theater history. So I moved to Seattle where I taught theater history. So I've been teaching playwriting, theater history. My first job was teaching dramaturgy at UNC Charlotte, my first, you know, tenure track job in a university. Before that, I taught critical theory and devising at Cornish College of the Arts. So Sometimes, you know, people refer to me as a Swiss army knife when it comes to teaching, because I can teach a great deal of subject areas. I'm pretty game for teaching whatever needs to get taught. So you got started in the 90s, pre 9-11, and now we're here in post. It's interesting that you mentioned 9-11, too, because it got me thinking about how these different national circumstances condition how we shape our careers, all of us which sounds like a whole other podcast episode we could talk about. But so the point I want to make here is how much has teaching changed from that time period based on the technology that's been available? Because we at Singular XQ are really interested in how technology impacts higher education and how changes are happening in that field very dramatically right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, not to state the obvious, but everything that you teach, your syllabus and all of your policies and even your reading assignments, things like that, are usually kept online. You know, your syllabus as a piece of paper that you copy, that you hand out on the first day. I still do that, though, because I'm nostalgic about that. You know, I, I, I kind of like that. And the students are like, ooh, paper. Um, <laughs> and exotic. they feel like that. But, you know, everything is is kept online. And I think that because professors are being asked to teach more and more students and to fill more and more seats, that technology has become a way to, I guess, how do I put this? Technology is both a tool that I use to teach, but it's also a tool that I use to organize my work day. It's the kind of thing where My grading happens online. And so when I have time, like a block of time to grade, when I go in, Canvas is the LMS that we use, will tell me this thing needs to be graded, this this many papers needs to be graded, this many uh, assignments need to be checked in. And also it it sort of keeps me, it's it, it, it sort of guides me in my day so that I can go there and I can complete a task that takes whatever period of time I have available to me that time. So everything's kept online and the students are used to it. That's what they expect. They expect that whatever they need to read, whatever they need to complete, whatever their assignment is, will be on Canvas, will be on their learning management system. That's the biggest change. Mm. And then there's huge, huge technological advances in you know grading software and discussion software, discussion platforms. And I take advantage of them whenever I can so that I can bring my classes to more students. Right, right. So it kind of actually magnifies your presence in a certain way. Mm -hmm. It does. It does. It makes it more possible to, it it gives us more of a presence at the university 
which is always something the university that is interested in more general education seats. And then the college I'm in is interested in, in filling as many seats with our classes as we can and reaching as many students. Um, I'm in a college of arts and architecture, so reaching as many students as possible to give them meaningful experiences in the arts. So yeah, technology makes that much more possible. So you mentioned how your, your work day is all organized and you mentioned about grading software and discussions. So these things are being automated. They're being automated through artificial intelligence. They're giving you insights too, right? Analytics. Like I remember when I was using my tools that I could look and see which of my questions get a lot of right answers and which get a lot of wrong answers and maybe adjust. So what what is like this this sort of function of machine learning and, and, um, and artificial intelligence in pedagogy? What's the good, the bad, and the ugly here? Because there's got to be some yeah. good things and there's got to be some bad things. What do you think? Yeah. So we use um, a platform called Packback, and it is a discussion platform that uses AI to assign students a grade for their discussion posts and their responses to their peers' discussion posts. And it works brilliantly. It encourages students to engage with the course content in a format that they are very familiar with because it feels like a social media platform. It feels as if they're commenting on someone's post, which in effect they are. And it also allows them, which is the best part of Packback, to attach like a picture or a video to you know their discussion post. And so the cumulative effect of that is that you, you you essentially create a website which becomes an archive of what your class was thinking during this semester about these topics that are brought up in class that they might not have a chance to talk about, to be like sort of called on in class to talk about. And it does a couple of things. It's a, it's a beautiful platform, right? So it's, it's a lot of fun to engage with. It also coaches students writing on the spot so that if they're making spelling errors or they're having grammar issues, the AI will say, hey, you know, you have some grammar issues. Would you like to review those? Kind of like a grammarly kind of thing. And it also will say, you know, your structure is a little bit wonky or your, your essay is not flowing. So here's, can we make some recommendations about how you might allow your paragraph to flow better? It also encourages them to use paragraphing. So it's a, it's a writing coach as well as a discussion platform. And at the end of the day, it, it's a big discussion with the entire class, whether that's 10 people or, you know, uh, in one case, one of our classes, 750 people um, who are all thinking out loud about the same thing at the same time. And then it gamifies it. You know, the students get a score. And so, and they have to hit a certain score. So it's like, oh yeah, well, I'm going to put two pictures in my post and I'm going to link to this essay on, on the internet about this subject. And that's going to make my score go up. And then just like in a game, there's a learner leaderboard, you know, where, you know, you want to get that top spot and students really compete, you know, to get to that top spot on the leaderboard. That's great. So it makes it fun. And, it, and it's got that same effect as, you know, the, like the dance assignment I was talking about, the sort of asynchronous dance assignment in my performance studies class in that these are, this is one person talking to one person at a time, which again is a much more intimate encounter than sitting and listening to someone lecture in a room, which has its, its, you know, purposes and its advantages. But again, it's, it's creating multiple instances of one-on-one -on -one communication, which I think is really healthy. Yeah. That, that's really exciting. Is there any drawbacks that you can see? 
The only drawback that I can see is that it's possible that some students, if you don't have, you know, help like teaching assistants or, you know, that sort of thing or enough, enough time to really engage with the platform, certain students can kind of fall off the map, just like if you were in a big lecture class and, you know, you never heard from one of these students in the back row who never, you know, someone who never raised their hand to speak. A similar thing can happen. But then, of course, there are tools that, you know, I actually have the ability to say, well, who hasn't participated in a while or who's behind on their there? And then I can say, okay, send an email to all of the people who haven't posted in the past two weeks. And it'll give you some boilerplate language. But I usually write my own like, hey, I haven't heard from you in a while. And we're really I really want to make sure that you're following along with class. If you have any questions, my office hour is this time and stop by and, and let's talk or, you know, that kind of thing. That's such a great point. We had a, a really great guest on a couple of weeks ago, Annika, and she talked about technology as an enabler. And what 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 I hear you saying is that that these technologies are enabling greater intimacy between you and your students and not really providing a barrier as some people fear. I think that that's really interesting. Yeah, you know, someone like gave me a little like some someone posted something on Twitter about AI software that grades essays and it, they were outraged. There's like, can you believe this? And this is terrible. And what, and I, and I wrote, I mean, I never comment on things on Twitter, but I was like, you know what? I use software like this and it actually makes for a much, a much more meaningful experience for the general education student in the arts. And if you want to know more, you know, why don't you send me an email and all that? And they were like, oh, I didn't know you use this. And I'm like, yeah, I use this and it's the best, you know? So, yeah. And I'm also, I've just started using a function of Packback that, that assesses essays. And that's been wild. That has been wild. That is kind of crazy to contemplate. And has your experience with it positive so far or? Really positive. It's in like beta testing right now. I'm one of the people who's like, yes, I will. I would like to try this out. Um, yes. And I'm doing it with a very small class. It's a class of six people who are taking a dramaturgy seminar. So we're all sort of in on the experiment. You know, we're talking about how the how we're interacting with the AI and and how it's making us think about our own writing and also thinking about you know um, the AI as sort of a having an, an agency in our thinking. And is 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 that happening? You know, it's really oh, interesting. That is that is very interesting. Yeah. So. I'm going to go back to the pandemic and I know that you guys are back now. Are you back full time? Are you hybrid? Yeah. What is Penn nope, State doing? We're back now? full time. Nope. Full time. In presence. Okay. So now that you're back, I'm not going to say it's over, but you know that you're back to full time. What's changed? And, and is, is, is there some bad changes and are there some good changes? What's going on? Well, I think there's a level of of sort of a baseline of anxiety about becoming ill, about, you know, because right now in our community spread is really high and a lot of our students and, and faculty are still struggling with friends and loved ones having COVID and the effects of long COVID. But the, I would say that, you know, the students who, students are are afraid, but they're also not really thinking about wearing masks anymore. They're not thinking about, you know, like limiting their risk. So there's that, there's this kind of like anxiety that we're all sort of living with because COVID hasn't gone anywhere, but the world seems to have moved on from it being like focusing all of our decisions and attention. 
And then in terms of technology, I would say that everybody has learned how to use their learning management system well enough now to be able to teach their class way more efficiently. And administration is realizing that this class that Alicia and I wrote, which is this really large enrollment performance studies class, works really well as an asynchronous online class and has become the class that my that that my department is really focusing on in growing enrollment. So mm. that there's that too, that, you know, everyone's just a little bit better at teaching online and using LMSs, which is good enough. That's, that's a, that's a pretty good takeaway, but also, you know, I think that companies that are using AI and that are using, you know, emerging technologies for teachers got a little boost, you know, because they proved that, you know, proof of concept, right. They, they proved like, yeah, you can keep teaching, but you have to, you, in order to keep teaching, you have to be just a little bit brave and say, yes, I'm going to let AI grade my students discussion posts. I'm going to reach out to Canvas, and if anybody from Canvas ever happens to listen to this, I'm interested in talking to you on uh, the podcast because I'm wondering about all the data they were able to collect during the pandemic. Yeah. Because all of a sudden their systems were just, you know, being used to the nth degree, and that allowed them to get so much more data and the learnings that must have come about. So it it sounds to me like I'm hearing this over and over again that the pandemic has been a digital transformation accelerator in higher ed. Do you think that that is true? I do. I mean, there's the the downside, of course, is that, you know, there's two ways to think of it. One way to think of it is professors are saying, oh, they're going, you know, the robots are going to replace us, right? This sort of, you know, which we've been worrying about for, I don't know, a couple, like a hundred years or so, right? That the robots are coming to replace us. There's that. And then, of course, that's silly. But then the other side of it is, well, you know, our administrators or people who make decisions about what to purchase in terms of teaching, teaching solutions, teaching software, are they going to be making ethical decisions about how we use this software? So are we using it so that we do not have to pay people more? Are we using it so that we are, so that we can undervalue what teaching is, or are we using it so that we can reach more students more meaningfully in a variety of ways. And I would hope it would be the latter, you know, not that I'm cynical, but, you know, it's an opportunity right now to get the ethical conversation going about the uses of technology and pedagogy. Which is something that occurred to me as I was bringing up about student data, because there is, of course, ethical concerns about, you know, using that data just like there is in every facet of life now that are going to be have to be answered in the near future. So um, let me ask you one one other question. You, you mentioned that you found that certain things are working better asynchronously and certain things are working better synchronously. I am very familiar with what we're discovering in um, working environments, what is working better synchronously and what works better asynchronously. And I know from cognitive science that, you know, thinking divergently is better done asynchronously and thinking convergently in prioritizing and categorizing things is better done synchronously. Have you noticed any specific teaching activities that are better done asynchronously? And what are the ones that are better done synchronously? In my experience, teaching theater and performance studies, asynchronous assignments that ask students to reflect are more successful. And I guess that almost 
that might sound kind of obvious, but when you ask a student in a, in a synchronous situation to think about an, you know, an issue or to contemplate an idea or to reflect on something that we've just done, the time is limited in an asynchronous class the student can spend the the majority of their time reflecting before they actually make the artifact that I'm asking them to, to, to make. Right. So, you know, my, one of my favorite examples, it's actually from the, from the, from the book, my colleague, Michelle Dunleavy, who teaches tap dance, because there is a delay or was a delay, at least teaching tap dance on zoom. It was difficult for her to teach synchronously, but one of the more successful assignments that she gave was to take a walk and to hear percussive sounds as, as they are walking and to sort of think about what are, you know, what are those beats and what, what are the time signatures of those? So I think that it's about time. It's about the kind of, it's about, you know, when, when students have time to structure what they think and, and then sort of gather up all of their thinking in order to make something, it works better. And for me, that means, you know, pieces of art, scenic designs, costume ideas, mood boards, dances, poems, you know, recitations. We have one assignment where students design a video game, it, you know, it hypothetical video game. So I don't know, synchronously, I don't like teaching online synchronously. <laughs> and that's, that's cool too. I think like, I think people have preferences and that's okay too. I prefer to teach either in person or, or asynchronously on the web. Hmm. Interesting. You mentioned time and that's mm. the fifth question I have today because we talk about five cool things on our episode. Right. The fifth <laughs> thing is I heard a rumor, Jean Marie, Dr. Oh. Pagan. I heard a, I heard a rumor that there is a durational performance that's going to happen on campus that's going to be live streamed. Now, oh, you I know what you're talking to about. Our audience? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Our, so it's, our, so it's, what is a durational performance first? Yeah, yeah. so you almost, you've almost got it. It's so, so the, the durational, a durational performance is a performance that takes place over a long period of time. That's really it. So you think about a play or a dance. Oh, it's an hour. It's two hours. This is a performance by the performance artist, Sarah Cameron Sund, who stands in the sea for 12 hours and lets the tide come in and out and people join her. Sometimes musicians gather on the shores, uh, people film her. It's, uh, it's, you know, depending on where she is in the world. And she's done this all over the world on September 14th, 2022, she is going to stand in the East river for 12 hours. And she's going to live stream that to college campuses around the world. And our Palmer Museum of Art is going to live stream her performance in the auditorium in the gallery so that students can stop by and just sort of sit with that performance for as long as they want to. You know, they could sit there all day or they could come by for a little bit. And this is something that I think was done. I think they did a pilot of this at NYU last year and decided to just stream it all over the world. Oh my goodness. Is there yeah. anything that the listeners at home can access so they can see it, the performance? Yeah. You know, I hate to ask people to hop on their Google because like people are always telling me to Google things, but the name of the performance is 36.5, a durational performance with the C. And it's uh, Sarah Cameron Sund, it's S-U-N-D-E. 
And even if you don't tune into that live stream, you can watch videos of her performance from different, you know, times and places. And it's the most remarkable performance because it draws attention to sustainability issues and climate issues in such a clear gesture. And it's just beautiful to watch. So yeah, I'm going to look at up for sure. Yeah, it's cool. So we're about to close, but I'd like to open the floor for you to talk about anything exciting going on in your life that you want to promote or anything that's been on your mind about technology or not. Okay, it doesn't yeah. matter. Let's see. Okay, so I'm directing a play. Auditions are next week, and I'm really excited because it's a play that one of our BA students wrote. Her name is Miriam Colvin. You heard her, you heard it here first. She's a terrific writer and she she wrote an amazing play. And I'm going into rehearsal for that in a couple of weeks. So I'm really excited about that. Awesome. What's the yeah. name of the play? It's called Mock, and it's about a mock trial team at a university and all of the yeah, and all of the sort of insider politics that happen with universities <laughs> like that. It's of really which funny. there are a lot. Yes. Speech and debate, mock trial, model yep. UN, baseball totally. and drama. People think it's the nerds, but it's really the most dramatic. Yeah, place and they are. They are. They are super nerds. But yeah, <laughs> it, it is, yeah, it's a cool play. I'm excited. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us here today. And thank you to the audience for tuning in again to another episode of Singular XQ. We look forward to our next guest next week. Uh, I won't say who it is yet because it's a, a kind of a surprise, but we are looking forward to seeing you all here next week. Don't forget to follow and subscribe. See you again next time on Singular XQ. Take care. Thanks for tuning in. All of the opinions expressed here are of the ones speaking them and do not reflect on their employers or organizations, nor are they necessarily shared by Singular XQ. Today's episode was produced by Caden Chernoff with support and content strategy from Ikra Miriam. Mad editing skills provided by Brogan Malloy and Lauren Edwards and original music provided by Abby Ahmad. Do you have feedback for us or a topic you'd like us to cover? How about suggesting a potential guest or even better, how about you coming in and be a guest on our show to talk about the work you do in digital transformation? Reach out to us at info at or connect with us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We love hearing from you. And don't forget to like, follow, subscribe, and share. Have a great day.